Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. Scientific entrepreneurs are undercapitalized relative to the market and relative to their own potential. So what we heard consistently was, I don't know how to know if they know what they're doing and if they're going to make money. You have to have a willingness to custom build a new set of KPIs for a company you invest in that will look like nothing else. But if you're actually going to measure performance, that's how you need to do it. Leslie Jump is the CEO and Mac Colridge, the CPO of Different. Different is an organization that helps institutions and family offices discover, analyze, diligence, and select venture capital funds. They recently completed the remarkable Deep Tech Investing Report based on more than 150 interviews with VCs, LPs, and other stakeholders. The report was funded by Schmidt Futures, a philanthropic vehicle created by former Google and Alphabet CEO Eric Schmidt and his wife Wendy. For the purpose of, and I quote, advanced societies through technology, inspire breakthroughs in scientific knowledge, and promote shared prosperity. In this episode, we talk about how and why science startups are undercapitalized. The causes are multiple and range from the scientific talent, geographic spread, and frequent lack of business skills, but also the optics problems of science versus software. We also look into the obsession with unicorns, the network bias of LPs, and how investors might have to custom design KPIs for different deep tech startups. Finally, we end on the optimistic note that COVID-19 raised awareness and demonstrated the need for deep tech more than ever. Leslie, Mac, pleasure to have you today. Thanks for having us. Likewise. I reached out to you because I came across your excellent report diving into deep tech and the financing of deep tech and the whole ecosystem. And I thought it would be great to get from you an overview of your report's research and conclusions. But before we get into this, it would be great to get an introduction about your background and how you came to create your company and your general mission. My name is Leslie Jump. I'm the founder and CEO of Different. We have been working together for about seven years now. Prior to that, I was a partner in a venture firm investing in startups across the Middle East, North Africa. I've also been an angel investor and an institutional investor. Mac and I came together to found the company really for the mission of helping more startups in more places to achieve their fundraising and capital goals. We built our Different platform a couple of years ago. And it is focused on allowing investors and other kinds of funders to research, analyze, and connect with, invest with people who are doing venture capital, and particularly now in deep tech. I understand you are tracking over a thousand US venture firms, right? And many startups as well. Yes. Over the years, we've built a data set of uh, about 1,400 venture firms, mostly in North America, although we are expanding internationally as well. And we have a lot of international experience, particularly in, in Europe and the Middle East, North Africa and Latin America. And we're looking to expand in all of those places. As part of the research we're going to talk about today, Mac led the team in doing a deep dive into some 4,500 portfolio companies of what we call deep tech venture capital firms. So we can talk more about that. Excellent. So, Mac, you've been working together for several years, but if you want to give us more information about your own background. Absolutely. Leslie mentioned how we originally met. We actually met in Rio through an organization called Startup Weekend at the time. Previously, I've started a couple companies elsewhere in largely software as a service in the marketing domain and worked closely with startup communities before teaming up with Leslie to do our current work. You decided to do a deep dive on deep tech. If you can tell about the origins of that report. 
Sure, I'll get started and then Matt can add color commentary. So we do periodic research uh, based on the data we've collected over the years about venture capital firms. We've produced research on the state of terms in venture capital. We produced research on women-led venture firms. And it was in the process of while we were working on that particular report that I met up with some of the folks over at Schmidt Futures, which is one of Eric and Wendy Schmidt's foundations. Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google and chairman of Google and Alphabet. Yes. And this particular group is focused on what they call scientific entrepreneurs. So you can think of this or we think of this as folks who are working on innovations in atoms powered by bits. Think about things like advanced biology, chemistry, physics, hardware, etc. Usually all of these have some kind of a component of software or advanced computing software, but they're not typically software pure plays with a few exceptions. And so the Schmidt folks came to us and said, look, we have this thesis that scientific entrepreneurs are undercapitalized relative to the market and relative to their own potential. Will you work with us to help us figure out, number one, is that the case? Is there a capital gap for deep tech entrepreneurs? And number two, what are the causes of that? You know, what's behind those gaps? And then work with us to help figure out and implement some strategies to drive more capital into this field. Do you know also why they had particular interest in those scientific entrepreneurs? I hesitate to speak on behalf of the Schmidt Futures Foundation. This is just my perception. But, you know, the reality is, and we're living in a world with particular urgencies today with the COVID-19 pandemic. If you think about the great challenges facing humanity, whether they're business challenges, uh, you know, financial challenges, healthcare challenges, education, you know, virtually anything you can name, you dig through it, you figure out pretty quickly that the only way we're going to figure our way through and around these challenges is through some sort of scientific-based innovation or R&D-backed innovation. It doesn't take a lot to look at the current financing environment, and particularly, again, in the pre-COVID-19 world, to look at, well, you know, the vast majority of capital is going to other kinds of things. I think that, you know, again, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but I think that they said, you know what, we want to do what we can to advance the talent in the field and advance the field as a whole. It might be worth here to maybe uh, state a bit what is your understanding of deep tech within the scope of your research? Deep tech from our research and the many, many experts we spoke to is technology that is backed by R&D. It's scientifically backed. It's typically in fields that are based on atoms rather than just bits, but powered by some kind of advanced computing. So very often it has its roots in biology, chemistry, physics, hardware, but it has some element of advanced computing that allows it to accelerate or allows it to do more. One of the quotes that we heard fairly often when we were interviewing experts about this is that it's not the kind of thing you can boot up in your garage over a weekend. It typically requires some kind of, you know, manufacturing or lab resources and a deeper understanding of science and technology in order to be successful. One thing to add on top of uh, Leslie's point was the kind of moniker used to describe these types of technologies uh, can vary pretty widely. We encountered a variety of phrases from deep tech to frontier tech to hard tech to tough tech, uh, science tech. 
And in the course of scoping our project and conducting the research, we wanted to understand what the perspectives were around those different monikers. We ultimately settled on deep tech largely because it seemed to be the most commonly kind of accurately interpreted and least filled with potential pitfalls. One of the things we found with LPs or institutional investors is that the term frontier tech sometimes is confused for investing in emerging economies, and it shifted the conversation very quickly. Similarly, with tough tech and hard tech, while that can play really well with some audiences, others have found it to be somewhat pejorative or heighten the concerns around risk, and so may lead potential investors to feel a little bit more concerned about investing in those types of technologies. So deep tech is the least ambiguous and most positively connoted. Deep tech is also kind of a moving target. What was deep tech five years ago, not necessarily deep tech today. Absolutely. This is one thing we found with, with artificial intelligence. There are some companies and some funds that focus on AI that truly are investing and building along the cutting edge. But at this point, we're starting to see AI and machine learning move its way into general technology applications. So one of the challenges we faced was trying to discern where was that cutoff. And it's not perfect, right? It, it's a big gray area that we, we have to operate in. But when you're applying machine learning to optimizing, say, some basic pricing of your marketplace, that's not the same as paving the path forward of, of new research and innovation of what's possible through, through artificial intelligence. It's difficult to define the borders and it's ever shifting. That's right. Although in a funny way, deep tech kind of takes investing and particularly venture investing back to its roots. If you look at, and we, we had a section in the report on the, the history behind all of this, if you look at, at where investing was, you know, 25 years ago, most of it would have been what we would today categorize as deep tech. Um, so while the applications evolve continuously, there's, there's this thread of science-based innovation that's continuous. Um, and, and another point I would say about deep tech uh, that may make it a little bit different from some other kinds of technologies that people invest in, there's two axes of challenges in deep tech. One is the technology. Will it, in fact, work, right? And some investors focus on investing in that or against that. Then there's also the business model. You may have cases where you know the technology is going to work, but you don't know whether there's a business for selling it. So, you know, quantum computing is kind of an example for that. You know, we, we talked to many experts who said, well, there are quantum computers. It's starting to work. People can think of use cases, but is it a big commercial market? We don't know yet. So investors have to evaluate both axes. Let's also talk about your methodology for research before we dive into findings and conclusions. You conducted over 100 interviews with VCs, LPs, and others, and you evaluated their portfolio to make some classifications, and you had a lot of insights from that. Is that accurate to say? That's accurate. Yes. In fact, it's a larger number. We interviewed over 150. And at this point, we've continued to pursue this research. So the number of interviews is, is always going up and further shaping our understanding of the field. And in terms of the VC funds, we look to understand the full breadth of funds that were investing in deep tech. And that was sourcing through funds that actively position themselves as deep tech investors and funds that are, are commonly referred to by labs, other funds founders as being deep tech. And that formed kind of the core component of VCs that made it into our analysis. And for them, we then looked at their portfolio companies and fully scored their portfolio for whether or not they were investing in deep tech as per our definition that we scoped for the research. 
we conducted a host of interviews and research on the institutional side with Wall Street and pensions and endowments and family offices to understand their perspectives and challenges and appetites around deep tech investing and further inform where are the capital gaps, what could be done to fix some of the capital gaps and what's working well. We rounded things out with a variety of research and interviews with the other ecosystem players ranging from government agencies to foundations to co-working spaces, if you will, that have access to advanced machinery and prototyping tools. Let's look into some of the things that you saw were working well. What are the good news in deep tech and investment in that sector? One, there is capital. Uh, there's not enough capital, I would say, but there is capital going into these kinds of companies. And there's a lot of interesting companies appearing. One interesting data point is the number of funds that have emerged recently. And this is both kind of a good thing and a bad thing. It was exciting to see that there are quite a high number of the over 200 VC funds in, in largely North America that we looked at investing in and around deep tech. And many of them are new. Many of them appeared in the last decade. That's speaking to kind of an emergence of interest and appetite. And the fact that there are LPs that are investing in these funds, that's promising. At the same time, these funds as emerging managers, they may struggle to fundraise. They don't fit the typical pattern that you see with institutions uh, in terms of what they're looking for. So yes, there are more investors. Yes, there does seem to be more appetite among corporations as well, which is great. But I think we're still early in this wave of investing in, in new technologies. A lot of those are probably more early stage as well, right? Pre-seed, seed on the early growth. Where do you see are the current capital gaps? You're spot on. The typical or median fund size we found for these deep tech funds is actually a little bit smaller than the general venture capital median in the US. So these aren't big funds. This is not SoftBank. These aren't billion dollar funds. They're not $500 million funds. There's a few of them, but most of them are smaller. And then by nature, they're investing earlier. We found a, a host of capital gaps, and I'll let Leslie unpack them a bit further. But at a high level, it kind of crosses the whole spectrum of deep tech. And sometimes it depends on what sector you're in and uh, where you're at with your business. But it begins with when those grants phase out from either government or foundations and runs all the way through to very late stage capital financing from Series B, Series C fundraises to first project finance being another acute problem. We've got a diagram in the report that tries to illustrate this. I'll try to, you know, verbally depict it for you. Uh, Max Wright, you know, one of the things that makes this field really interesting is that there are funders who don't exist in other fields. So, for example, the U.S. government, the SBIR program, that's a very significant program. For the period that we did our research, uh, it was about $3.1 billion, which would have accounted or was equal to about almost half of what all CVC investing was in that same period. So a, a non-trivial amount of capital. But as Max said, it tends to phase out before these companies are really at the point where they have the traction to be able to attract commercial investors. People in the United States like to talk about Series B KPIs, which is a term that's often used by the Sand Hill Road crowd, the folks who run VC firms in the United States. And for a typical sort of enterprise SaaS company, by the time they hit or are ready to go raise money for a Series B, they have a very well-known set of traction milestones that the investor can use to measure the potential of the particular company. 
For deep tech, that's not the case for a variety of reasons. They take longer, number one, in many cases, not all, but in many cases. And their development cycle of the technology, as well as the development cycle of their customer base, looks a little different, has different patterns. As a result, in the US in particular, North America, investors tend to come in a little bit later. Now, back to your question on the investors themselves and the gap in the investing themselves, Max said that the majority of deep tech firms in the United States are in the earlier stages. So they are smaller funds. They are investing in earlier stages. They cluster there. There are literally, you can count them almost on your two hands, a group of dedicated deep tech firms that can invest capital in the later stages. And there are very few deep tech companies that have actually gone through the whole cycle and are now on the public equity market. You know, you can think of Tesla as an example of one. So that is how the gaps look by deal stage. Now, if you kind of flip the axis, the other way to look at it is by market sector or segment. What we found, again, for the period in which we did the analysis, is that 60% of the capital that does go into deep tech goes into life sciences. Another large chunk goes into AI and machine learning. And so for the period in which we evaluated, there was about $131 billion in total capital placed in venture-backed startups in the United States. If you take out life sciences, and you take out AI and ML, the rest of deep tech, all of the other sectors combined got just under 12 billion. So about 9% of the capital. That's a very limited amount compared to all the industries that deep tech can address. That's right. And in many cases, these companies are more capital intensive up front. It depends on what you're talking about. Some things are more at parity with a traditional software startup. But if you look at companies who are manufacturing things or companies who are working in labs need to develop things, you know, let's think about the extremes. Some companies working on space, you know, I mean, <laughs> those startups, their series A's are quite large compared to a SaaS enterprise startup. One key word that you mentioned is the word upfront, because that really, I think, for me, summarizes the difference in the capital requirements and the trajectories of deep tech companies versus others. Because by the time a deep tech company has a product to market, they've already done a lot of work. They created a lot of IP and ideally also have like customers in the pipeline. A lot of deep tech companies tend to be B2B companies where the needs are identified and the ROI can be calculated. So why is it in your understanding that investors are hesitant to put money into deep tech? I think you just hit the nail on the head. It's because they are slower to develop in terms of customer sales and revenue traction. The vast majority of deep tech companies are enterprise companies. So their customers, and particularly their first customers, are either other businesses or some government agency. Those contracts take time, even with some of the work that's being done by wonderful organizations like, you know, for example, the Air Force is, in the United States has put a particular focus on moving faster and working with innovative companies. It still takes months and months, not weeks. So what that means is they've got additional capital requirements up front. They're working in atoms plus bits. So they need to build stuff to, to make their technology and to demonstrate that it works. That's the technical risk. And then they've got a longer period of time to engage first customers or first customer pilots to demonstrate that there's a market. That's the business model risk. So this concentration of risk makes investors more hesitant. But you were also saying that it used to be kind of the root of Silicon Valley. So the investors have changed. Is it that there's better opportunities with software alone? What's your take on this? I don't know. You got an extra hour? <laughs> <laughs> we might. We could talk for a long time about this one. Um, 
So let me just, again, start by saying we did our report in the pre-COVID economy. Things are changing in real time, and, and we fully expect that things are going to be impacted by the current economic downturn. But if you look at the venture market in the United States you know, before March 1st, there was a fair amount of fluff. You know, there, there was a fair amount of pretty high valuations, pretty crowded investing in what people might look at and say, hmm, is that really a business, right? To put it a little bit more charitably or a little bit more optimistically, what people found with the introduction of enterprise software and then with the introduction of the commercial internet and all the different business applications and consumer applications that ride on the internet, there was a capacity to be able to boot up and build a product very quickly whole lean startup movement, right? Building a company over a weekend. Mac mentioned that he and I met through Startup Weekend. I was on their board and he was one of their global organizers. And, you know, literally you could start something over a weekend that might turn into a billion dollar business. That's just not physically possible for the most part when you're talking about atoms versus bits. And the multiples, the investment multiples. Now these are outliers. The media has a habit of making it seem like it's a more regular case. But, you know, unicorns are, in fact, unicorns because they are outliers. And 100x multiples are outliers. Unfortunately, the media and other folks have done a successful job of training investors, VCs, and even more difficult LPs, the investors in the VC firms, to expect these outsized multiples and to look for these outside multiples when they make investments. And so therefore, you know, they're more hesitant to put capital into something that's got additional risks, additional layers of risks, and has at least the perception of a lower return in the future. I'll give you one quick anecdote for an interview that we did when we were doing our research. So we spoke to a member of a private equity team at a very large bank based in the United States. This group is fully focused on selection of private equity and venture capital fund investments for their clients. And so we were doing our interview with this particular individual and talking to them about, you know, do you invest in science-based technology? So the person paused for a minute and said, well, we used to do that. We did some life sciences investments, but we did an analysis of our portfolio and we found that you know, our life science investment was doing only a double digit return. But you know, you can get triple digit returns all the time with software. So we shifted capital in the direction of software. It's such a guarantee. <laughs> Right, exactly. It's an optics problem. That's not the reality. And when you look at the returns of funds, that's not the reality. So part of what's happened is, you know, yes, there have been some demonstrated cases of these outside returns and investors decided that should be the norm, not the exception. And that's what they've been chasing. And I guess many of the deep tech specialists or uh, thematic funds or broad deep tech funds, like you categorize them in your research, they haven't had the time to prove that the returns are there because they're just too young. Right. Very few are have gone past a fund two. Very, very few. Vast majority, I believe, or at least a preponderance were fund ones. And, you know, as you know, venture capital fund term is typically 10 years. So it takes time for them to go through the cycle of investing in companies, the companies to be successful, and then the companies or the fund to exit. So yes, we literally just don't have enough history on these firms to know exactly what the performance is, but the early indicators are quite positive. In a way, it's a little bit like the early years of the internet. 
you couldn't find, of course, a venture fund that had returns because they're just getting started. But some people could picture that this would be big. One of the keys of deep tech is that now it's addressing massive industrial sectors that typically have very low R&D budgets uh, on innovation, automation, artificial intelligence, robotics, and these type of things. So the opportunities are large. How come there is still this optics problem about the opportunity size? I think you're talking about two different sets of players with two different sets of criteria. Max spent some time with a very large industrial company in the Midwest, and I'll I'll let him talk to that example. Those companies, you're right, you know, some of them have smaller R&D budgets, but many of them have quite substantial R&D budgets. And they understand that their future is dependent on being able to keep up with these technologies. So while they may not be, you know, bold-faced names in terms of investment, in fact, some of them are private companies and very much keep under the radar. They are very much active in the field, more so as first customers, right, Um, and later stage acquirers than venture investors. Mac, you want to talk about the example you had last fall? Sure. I spent a little bit of time with a large privately held corporation in the Midwest that focuses on industrials. They're specifically leaning into reinventing the industries they operated. And that seems to be, from, from my understanding, is how they've operated in the many years that they've been around. So they have a a long-term perspective and they've previously done this successfully and they know it's important to stick around. Uh, I don't remember the exact data point, but how short the typical duration is on the public markets for publicly traded companies these days. I think it's 10 years or less. Around 1900 or 1920, it was much longer. So you're seeing these timelines compress. And then, you know, if you think really think about incentives, specifically with public companies, many of them, this is well known, struggle with the quarter to quarter returns and managing investor expectations there. So within a corporate, what is kind of the managerial appetite for medium to longer term risk and opportunity? And if you're setting these expectations of managing for the quarter of the year, deep tech is not going to be number one, number two, or probably number three priority. But if you have some, especially if you have leadership or ownership taking the long view for value creation, then things change. And then I think you see additional opportunities for commercial pilots, investments into deep tech companies and funds that can do very well. It comes down to what are you managing towards? It matters very much, as Max says, who the senior executive, you know, kind of sponsor is and who the investor team is. One team that we spoke to that comes out of a corporate environment that we found just incredibly impressive was Airbus. And Airbus Ventures, you know, as you know, France and US based, and they're doing really interesting work in this field. You know, that's a pretty big conglomerate. One of the reasons why we think that they're so successful is that the profile of their investment team very much matches the profile of the other deep tech focused investment teams that we saw, which is that these are not, as can often be the case with a lot of venture capital and certainly private equity funds, these are not financial engineers. They don't come from investment banking. They're not from Wall Street. They are experienced and deeply committed to this field. That either means they're former founders who themselves founded companies and understand that cycle very well and understand how difficult it is in deep tech, or they're executives from the industry and have worked at it from the corporate side and understand very well the macro environment in which these deep tech startups are building and selling. So that kind of expertise makes a huge difference in the success of these firms and the companies that they back. 
That's really interesting. Actually, that leads me to another question, which is about the profile of investors. So you mentioned ex-operators and founders. And one of the surprises I had reading, but also consistent with what I observed, is that most investors don't have PhDs on their team. It's surprising in a way because the perception from outside is that if you want to invest in deep tech, you need to understand it inside out and you need to be yourself a scientist. It surprised us as well. We thought we would find a higher ratio of PhDs among the partners at these VC firms than we did. 77% of the VC firms in our analysis did not have any partners with a PhD. Uh, The rest had either all PhDs, which was very uncommon, or at least one partner with a PhD. And this was pretty interesting. There were a number of components that we, we found as kind of potential drivers here. So one factor is Leslie's point on the typical backgrounds of these partners being prior founders, being prior operators. Many of them do have some form of technical experience around deep tech in some way, but oftentimes they don't see it all the way through a PhD. For example, one of the interesting things we, we looked at was where people went to school for bachelor's degrees. The stereotype in the broader venture capital community is that most VCs went to Stanford or Harvard in some capacity. That's not exactly true, but it is common. With deep tech, that's not true at all. Sure, some went to Harvard and Stanford, but it's not an outsized majority by any amount. In fact, they're more likely to have attended state schools, and they're fairly likely to have majored in some form of STEM. Some continue on to get master's degrees. That was kind of an interesting variation from the typical venture community, as well as kind of what we expected here. Now, in terms of their approach to how they invest, what we found was a lot of these partners really focus on value add and go to market and commercialization. You know, PhD may not be as necessary. It's really about being able to read into how to navigate kind of the enterprise sales climate and how to fit the challenges you encounter in those environments. A lot of the partners at these VC funds would have networks of PhDs they rely on to support their due diligence before they invest. One of the great phrases we heard was, if you ask three PhDs whether this startup technology will work, you will get three different answers. As a partner, your job is to figure out which of them to believe. One other thing to add on the PhD question, when we came into this project, we started interviewing experts. um, And a few of them at the beginning said, oh, you know, all of the great deep tech companies are coming from universities. Well, Mac and I come from a world and we believe as people that, you know, smart people are everywhere and lots of different kinds of folks can become successful entrepreneurs. So that just didn't sit right with us. So we dug around and we found actually a really interesting report from Hello Tomorrow and BCG, I think you all are familiar with them, that showed that just 30% of the deep tech startups in their study emanated from universities. And there was subsequently a report in the Washington Post that just 2% of all patents in the United States emanated from universities. So it's pretty clear that they're coming from places other than the halls of academia. And if you think about what it takes to complete a PhD, that makes sense. You know, it's what, 10-year investment in your life, right? And you're tracked very much into a particular kind of research, you know, with particular kinds of scholars. The way that you're incented and everything else is very, very different from building a company. What we heard when we broadened the lens in our research, and, and this made sense to us, is that Actually, the best entrepreneurs and and so possibly maybe some of the best investors in deep tech 
are PhD dropouts. They're the folks that understand the science, but don't go all the way, that have the entrepreneurial you know, zest and decide, I'm going to go build a company around this. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it also runs somewhat counterintuitive was what people think about deep tech. And again, what you're saying is also consistent with our portfolio. Like we're just uh, about to celebrate our, our thousands investment. Hundreds of them are now either in the life sciences and hardware. I think a lot of those are not professor track or research track. They're like dropouts or masters who decided to go into industry and entrepreneurship. Yeah, that, that makes sense to us. And by the way, congratulations. You know, that's an amazing accomplishment that you and your firm have reached. And you now also have a pretty tremendous data set on this. The investments have evolved to more deep tech because we see all those opportunities regarding to really big problems that few companies and few innovations are addressing. Since we're talking about the profile of founders, what do you think are the key problems that those tend to face? I think in your report, you talk about the challenge of having both science and storytelling. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. These scientific entrepreneurs, a lot of times they start with the science. In most cases, that seems to be the case. Now, whether they are a PhD dropout, uh, whether they may have a PhD or if they come from industry, in one way or another, they have a root in kind of the technical component of the innovation that they're building around. If you think about just the sheer amount of effort that it takes to become a domain expert to shepherd those kinds of innovations, do you really have the time to also become an expert in all the business skills as well. It's hard to have both. This is a common challenge that we've heard from investors that focus in the space is that there tends to be a disconnect between the science skills and the business skills. There are programs that are starting or have been around for a while really to train these scientists to be better at the business side. And there are some entrepreneurs or some scientists that just naturally excel at both, but you can't expect it. So one of the things that we found was a common value-add component of early stage investors was trying to help these scientists navigate some of these early pitfalls around the business and give them enough skills to make the right decisions and the right hires to strap in the best commercialization people or build a stronger marketing component depending on what their technology is. Yeah, I mean, uh, for any startup, uh, co-founder matching is a huge, huge challenge. You know, it's a marriage. It's not dating, right? <laughs> You're in there for a while. But it is typically a little bit more challenging for these kinds of companies because if you're talking about a software startup, as a business person, you can navigate pretty far in a software startup without having a lot of technical chops. Then you have to bring in your engineering team. It is impossible to start a deep tech company without the deep technology. And what we heard, you know, like last fall, I was at MIT, has a group called The Engine, and they had a conference, they call it the Tough Tech Conference. And I heard a bunch of demos from their startups. And, you know, these folks have been working on these particular technologies, these scientific discoveries for, you know, decades in some cases, right? So they're very invested in the technology. It's more challenging for them to think about, okay, well, then how do I step out of, you know, my training as a scientist and think about it as a marketer, think about it as a business person who needs to integrate this into a supply chain. And so there are programs like MIT's Engine, Techstars now has a number of different accelerators that are focused on hard tech or deep tech. There are other organizations that we met through the course of our work. Again, some really extraordinarily fine ones, but not nearly enough. We need a lot more help in this regard. 
I do think there's an opportunity on the business side for individuals who really focus on, on business. And the examples I'm thinking of are within MBAs to put more focus on finding technologies and scientists that are entrepreneurial oriented scientists that are building these technologies and work with them on the commercialization. I have a friend who actually went to Harvard Business School and he started a company through this. He found an interesting opportunity and found a set of technologists that were really working on this deep tech oriented area and has built a, a company around it. I think a lot more could be done there. I'd love to see more MBAs looking into the scientific departments for PhD students who are working on interesting things and helping them think about, okay, how could we apply this to solve some of the big problem of industry? That's a really great point. I mean, to the extent that there are startups and technologies emanating from a university, it's not entirely surprising that they're siloed because universities are siloed. You know, we, Mac and I are proud liberal arts graduates, so we approach this with a very interdisciplinary approach. We used quantitative and qualitative research. We used primary and secondary. We talked to every expert that we could get our hands on. Um, and we moved across the entire spectrum from the startups themselves, the, the labs, the universities that they might have emanated from all the way through to, you know, uh, individual investors and large institutional investors who may be backing funds that back those startups. Not everybody thinks that holistically and the university system does not reward people for thinking that holistically. So it's not surprising that the MBAs have a hard time figuring out where to go find the great people in the engineering department that are working on something very exciting. There's no incentive for them and there's no incentive for the faculties either. Although there is an interesting group out of Oregon State University who's tackling that right now, looking at how they can work with tenured faculty to help them to better understand how to encourage, you know, commercialization, development of companies around their technologies versus just the R&D side of it. Complementing or training scientists with business skills is really a big challenge. And uh, in our programs and our investment model at SOSV through Hacks or IndieBio, we do what you describe as basically trying to train teams up in the minimal business skill set that they need to get to the next stage where they can start hiring experts. You have government program like ICOR in the US that's now in about 100 different centers that tries to train scientists and help them go through uh, Steve Blank's customer development method to uh, basically get them to engage with customers before they dive too deep into solutions. They need to understand really clearly problems. And there's a few other organizations, some of them we work with, one uh, that's uh, in Europe and Asia called uh, Entrepreneur First that also has a very interesting way to match uh, scientists with uh, more like uh, business profiles to help create teams around technologies. But uh, it's true that it's a challenge and particularly in ecosystems where you don't have critical mass of entrepreneurs or of researchers, it's difficult to organize that matching and people might just end up doing things on their own because they don't have a choice or because they cannot meet enough people. Right. And, and you know, back to Max's point about uh, the distribution of these folks, you know, they're, again, the perception is often, well, they're all at MIT in Boston or they're at, you know, Stanford in the Bay Area. But the reality is, is that, you know, we have great universities across the country. They're producing really interesting science. We have, you know, industrial corporations, again, across the country. Uh, they are not concentrated on the coasts and they're producing really interesting science. And so the distribution becomes a challenge as well because they're not having the serendipitous collisions that they might if they were more physically co-located. 
Yeah, that's right. One place that we found in our investment landscape that really outperformed is uh, Waterloo. And that's thanks to a combination of the University of Waterloo, the fact that there's BlackBerry or was BlackBerry around that trained a lot of people, also invested a lot in the ecosystem. So now you have this great matching of experienced entrepreneurs combined with great technical training and university research. We invested quite a lot in that ecosystem. Maybe an inspiration for other ecosystems where a corporation could act as a catalyst. It seems that big corporations act as an even better catalyst after the collapse. Right. <laughs> no, that's true. Although I think Google set up a pretty big office up there. And Carnegie Mellon and Google is a great example in Pittsburgh, right? So that's one of the top robotics centers in, in the country. And that's Pittsburgh, right? Nobody thinks about Pittsburgh as a hotspot from a technology or a corporate perspective. And yet Mellon family, lots of you know deep, deep, thoughtful investors there. Uh, and then we haven't really even talked about the defense community. You know, one of the challenges in the United States that and particularly again in the pre-COVID environment was, you know, folks were really worried about the role of China and other quote unquote competitive superpowers in the advancement of these kinds of technologies. If you look at coastal investment only, there's a much higher propensity for there to be international backers and international scientists involved. That gets pretty challenging for folks like the Department of Defense or the intelligence community. So, you know, I was speaking with somebody yesterday that was talking about a massive new facility that Army Futures Command has created in College Station, Texas, which, and, you know, if you've been to Texas, trust me, College Station isn't at the top of your tourism list, but great universities around and, and corporations, and they also have the benefit of being able to screen for folks that may or may not be helpful to them. A couple of other topics from your research. So one of them is around the fact that for VCs to exist, they need those LPs, either institutional or corporate or family offices, and trusting them capital to invest in startups. You interviewed a number of LPs, and one uh, term I, I noticed in your research is the, this idea of network bias of asset managers, and also the difficulty there is for them to diligence or make a case for deep tech-focused funds. Could you tell more about this? Sure. So there's two issues here. In terms of the network bias, again, this is an optics issue, but it's also a reality for private equity as a whole and venture capital as a subset of that. And basically what it comes down to is if you look at the category of institutional investors in the United States, so these are things like university endowments and, and foundations and pension funds, both public and private pension funds, and some of the very largest family offices, they break into kind of two broad segments. There's a a small subsegment, and Yale University is the embodiment of this in this country. There's a small subsegment of institutions that have deep knowledge of the venture capital field, have a lot of relationships with venture capital managers, and are quite comfortable finding and vetting venture capital managers across the spectrum of investment. They are a distinct, distinct minority. For other investors, even some of the largest in the world, managing trillions of dollars in assets, they rely on, you know, kind of the tried and true big names and the networks of people around them. Their first preference is to be in whatever the latest Sequoia Capital Fund is or whatever the latest Andreessen Horowitz Fund is. Or they'll say, okay, well, if a general partner spun out of Sequoia and is starting their own firm, then we'll invest in them, right? They use networks of people to do their diligence, to do their screening, to decide who to invest in. Well, what does that do? Two things that are really significant in this field. One, it eliminates everybody else who wasn't related to any of those people. 
um, who's out doing really interesting things and come from other places. And as we noted, the vast majority of deep tech investors come from other places. So that's number one. And then number two, you know, on a personal level, it creates the conditions for some pretty serious network bias. If you only invest in people you know or one degree outside them, you're going to eliminate a lot of folks, women, people of color, people from other geographies, and as we've said, people from other sectors. So that's one side of it is that it, it becomes this self-referential circle and people have a hard time institutionally particularly have a hard time breaking out of it. And, you know, I've sat in the institutional investor chair. I'm sympathetic to the fiduciary responsibility. And this leans into the other problem, which is that venture capital is literally the riskiest asset class that any institutional investor can invest in. So when something like a college endowment sets up their institutional investment policy, they'll say, okay, we're going to put X percent into public equities and a half, you know, part of that's going to go international and global, part of that'll be domestic. And we'll have, you know, a certain amount in fixed income and we'll have a certain amount in alternative assets. And alternative assets will include things like real estate and real estate funds and other kinds of resources, and then private equity and venture capital. So to begin with, the vast majority of institutions are only going to have a small percentage of their assets invested in venture capital. It's the highest risk. It's the highest fees. It's the longest term. So already you're setting up all these things that you know make institutional asset managers kind of nervous, right? Then on top of that, you say, okay, well, not only are we going to invest in venture capital, we're going to go to the riskiest part of venture capital because we're going to invest in these companies that we don't even know. I mean, this stuff sounds like something out of Harry Potter, you know, materials that make satellites invisible, right? I mean, does that even exist? Do I know if it works? I never heard of this before, right? So when you add these layers of risks, um, that makes it even more challenging to get an institutional asset manager to look at them. And so what we heard consistently was, I don't feel like I either have the networks and can source, so find these deals. And even if I could find these deals, I don't have the wherewithal to diligence them. I don't know how to know if they know what they're doing and if they're going to make money. We've seen through our own fundraising, we closed a new fund at the end of last year. Good timing pre-COVID and we got quite good traction and ended up oversubscribed with over $270 million. But the most traction we got was definitely from family offices, high net worth, particularly tech people and corporations that just saw the value of the type of innovations we were accessing and giving them access to. But yeah, with institutions, it's, it's a lot harder. Even though we had a few sign up, we understood that we didn't tick all the boxes that they were looking for. Right. And then on the family office side, the tricky part is those folks think they want to invest directly in companies. You know, they don't want to pay manager fees. And in some cases, that makes a lot of sense. In some cases, they've got the expertise to do that. A bunch of them do not. <laughs> and so again, then they'll reflex back into, okay, well, I'm just going to avoid this again, unless somebody in my network refers me to this particular deal. To layer on to Leslie's point, you know, if you're going to do directs into startups, particularly, you know, as a family office, you have to ask yourself, okay, that's fine if times are good. But as we're seeing with the changing economic environment, do you have the workout skills to address those co-investment deals or direct deals you did when things get bad? And that's one of the values that VC funds can offer. I mean, you have managers, their job is to do that. They're your front line. They deal with these problems. So you don't get that 3am phone call. Penn 
pensions know they don't want that in most cases. Family offices may or may not be as aware of some of the downside risks on their time. For any LPs that are listening, I think it's important to bear in mind the challenges around pattern matching. You know, you can stick to that framework and that's okay. Nobody got fired for buying IBM. But there's a really good quote that I actually received from a VC fund, Loop Ventures, from Sir John Templeton. It is impossible to produce superior performance unless you do something different from the majority. If you're going to the same network of deal sourcing with the same exact frame of mind, you're going to get that. Kind of variation I heard is you don't get rich by reading the news. Right. Those are really good points. What we saw also on the family offices front is that even if they have, maybe because they're an industrial family or something, like some technical capability to evaluate deals, one thing that some of them struggle with is actually generating deal flow. Because on the one hand, they want to be discreet. On the other, they want deal flow. And sometimes they also don't have the geographical reach because they might be strong in a region or a country, but don't necessarily have the footprint they need to get the full spectrum deal flow, essentially. We started out our company with a focus on angel investors. We created a workshop structure with Brad Feld, and we used to teach workshops to angel investors. And we said consistently, portfolio theory, right? You've got to have a diversity of investments if you expect them to be successful. So the worst thing that can happen is that a family office you know, puts money in one deal or two deals, and that goes belly up, and they say, okay, I'm out of here. I'm never doing that again. And that's yet another reason to look at fund management. You know, The arguments that family offices make it against fund management are, one, the fees into the performance. Fees are understandable, right? But, you know, as we pointed out earlier, you know, these people are actually working for this money. They they do deserve to get paid. One can negotiate fees. But the performance issue, again, is an optics issue. There was a report by Cambridge Associates earlier this year, and there have been many other reports. Fund performance, particularly in venture capital, rates very favorably with virtually any other asset class you can imagine. And selection of managers is really, really important. So, you know, family offices, I think, would be in a better position to do manager selection than individual company selection in the vast majority of cases. To some extent, you get what you pay for as well, right? There's work being done on the complex work at that. Yep. To cover some of your conclusions, uh, if we could go over what could be done for closing the gap on the LP front, the VC front. Uh, I remember one quote from your report where you said new KPIs or new mental models and frameworks are, are needed for deep tech. What are the key conclusions and key solutions that you envision to improve the deep tech investment environment? I can take the KPI side. There's a there's a host of, of potential solutions to the various challenges. And I think it's safe to say they all need to be done. Uh, specifically on the KPI side, it's a tricky one. And this really relates to more of these generalist VCs that may do one-off deals into deep tech companies. But by and large, they're investing primarily in software peer plays. And given the stage that they typically invest in, what's happening is they're comparing a deep tech deal to a CPG deal to a SaaS deal, right? And the metrics in those peer play software companies just look better. I think you have to have a willingness to look at different KPIs. I mean, they won't translate. It's easy to do the same thing that you've been doing. It's hard to be willing to take a risk on a company that doesn't fit your KPI framework. Can we prescribe specific KPIs? I think that's harder. There's some efforts I've heard from a few VCs in terms of trying to structure around specific commercial pilot metrics and things like that. But the nature of deep tech is that your company is, is likely so unique that it doesn't fit particular framework of KPIs. And in fact, 
fact, you may have to custom design KPIs. I think this is one thing we heard as a challenge from the team at Coke Industries with their investments. You have to be willing to custom build a new set of KPIs for a company you invest in that will look like nothing else. But if you're actually going to measure performance, that's how you need to do it. Otherwise, you're going to be fooling yourself by tracking the not wrong numbers. We did a 360 analysis of the landscape. There's a diagram we have in our report that kind of demonstrates it's a solar system. It's not a you know linear landscape. And we came up with, I think, over 135 different ideas across the spectrum from the university community to government to private investors of all stripes. But that all happened before COVID-19 hit. And I think we have to be realistic about the fact that we are where we are now as a globe, right? This isn't just affecting one city. It's affecting every city city and village in the world. Reflecting on that and kind of thinking out forward from there, COVID-19 demonstrates in abundant technicolor the fact that we need deep tech more than ever. We need these innovations more than ever. If we'd had arguably more investment in diagnostics, we might have avoided this pandemic, right? There are changes, almost every aspect of the way we live and work, the way we learn, the way, you know, we shop as a result of this pandemic. So we need these kinds of technological advances. But the reality is, is that there's been tremendous economic impacts and not in a good way. In the United States, as of this week, I think 33 million people have filed for unemployment. New York Times just reported that this is the highest number since the Great Depression. This is a hundred year occurrence, right? So naturally, investors are hitting the pause button, right? There's tremendous market volatility. Although arguably the capital markets are not doing badly in the United States, there's huge amounts of volatility and we don't know what the future looks like. So what does that mean? It means it's all the more important for government and other kinds of patient capital to step in. And while it's been completely understandable that the first thought is we have to deal with the pandemic, we have to deal with containment and treatment. It all makes sense. And the funding that they've focused on has focused on that. And then there's been the immediate urgency of all these people who have you know, lost jobs and are continuing to losing jobs and the economic impact of that. But our government, the United States government, the governors in the states, the local governments, and philanthropic funders need to think longer term about the strategies for the world that we live in now. And how can we invest in and bridge the gap in capital for the very technologies that are going to help us carry forward? So I think, you know, one of the biggest things that people need to think about, and we're starting to have conversations with different organizations around this, is how do we create alternative mechanisms for capital to continue to fuel these innovators, the entrepreneurs, the funders who help them as we all kind of navigate this new environment? We had some specific recommendations about that in our report. We'll probably publish some more, you know, now for the post-COVID environment, if you will. I see your report as well as part of the solution, like raising awareness is a, one of the tasks that can unlock capital and uh, raise the profile of companies and uh, the investors and the people behind the investors. Uh, we try to do our share also with, uh, you know, podcasts and some other publications and uh, also the number of investments we do. Do you see any other low hanging fruit that don't need uh, necessarily like a long term government patient capital involvement, but some other things that could be done on a shorter time frame? Absolutely. There are things that are already happening within government, right? I used 
the example of the Air Force a little bit earlier, they quickly pivoted one of their SBIR programs, accelerated their timeline to just a matter of a couple of months, right? We're aware of other agencies that are doing the same. So even within government, they do have the capacity to move fast. There are certainly some things that can be done to help, as you say, raise awareness and focus folks. You know, there are different initiatives that are happening now. People can write checks quickly when they want to. So as you say, and and you all are doing a tremendous job of this, raising awareness, making the opportunities obvious, accessible, and understandable to these folks, I think is the job of the deep tech community. And so to the extent that we can help, you know, connect with each other better, provide information to each other, and amplify the message for each other, that will go a long way. That would encourage more investors, more startups to expand the size of that deep tech community. Right. Absolutely. Look, storytelling is so key. And this is where we appreciate the work you're doing and others are doing. And, and there are some good outlets. You know, there, there's MIT Tech Review and there's some individual bloggers that do good work on this. And there's some great blogs from funds and newsletters, but it's not enough. We have to look at the broader ecosystem that we're operating in. And, you know, deep tech is just a component and we're grouped into technology with every other kind of software that's out there. So so most of the world just sees this as technology. And of the big technology outlets, like the TechCrunch and other large media outlets that, that cover tech, they're not writing a lot about deep tech yet. We've seen a little bit here and there. We've seen a little bit on on COVID. I think it comes down to deep tech innovators themselves and the funders to continue to share the fascinating stories and the incredible potential of what these entrepreneurs are building to actually just change the world. That's what these technologies do. This is the fun part. On top of also new things, the COVID situation has really reminded people that we also need to improve the way we deal with the physical world in general for health and how business is run. You're exactly right. If you think about the fact that three months ago, every restaurant in the world wanted you to come and sit down for a couple hours and spend as much money as possible, right? And now, (laughs) you know, it's uh, order it on your computer or by the phone and pick it up on the sidewalk, right? From a socially safe distance. Virtually overnight, our entire educational system went online. From elementary schools up through colleges and universities, they flipped a switch and everybody moved to distance learning. Well, I can guarantee you that is one industry that was not ready for that, right? Huge, huge change. And there are ways that, you know, technology in particular, deep tech can help with those things. Excellent. To wrap up, now is the time if you have some recommendations to share. I've been watching, I think both are actually on Netflix, Abstract Design, which is a show that lets you learn about people who are legends of their craft in design. And I find that incredibly fascinating to see how how these experts operate and have built their craft over time. Another one is uh, Extraordinary Homes, which I just finished, which actually dives into the architecture of these brilliantly constructed homes and and how they fit them into these uniquely challenging landscapes. It's a bit of a theme here. I, I tend to be very into design. Design. <laughs> On the reading side, there's a great history of colors book that I'm working through. I like to read about the history of specific concepts or objects to get better sense there. I uh, also read a really good book on the history of pepper and other spices. And then for one that's maybe a little bit more deep tech related, but definitely in the realm of science fiction, one of my favorite all-time books there is The Motes in God's Eye, which is a creative take on first contact between humans and aliens that was written in, the, I think, the early 1970s. Many of those references I don't know, so I'm really looking forward to check them out. 
I went to this funky little college in the United States that only read original sources from the classics. So I kind of had this bias since childhood against business books and so forth. But I'm married to a guy who spent his career as a diplomat in the Middle East. So my way of refreshing myself is to dive into his world and read, you know, political works, works uh, that he's working on, things that he's doing, and think about these challenges and opportunities from the framework of another country and another region of the world. Um, so to me, what's inspiring is, you know, listening to how other people are tackling these challenges and so many more in such a wildly different way. I'm on the board of a, an ed tech company that's based in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. It's called Ubango. And they do wonderful elementary education programs uh, for little kids across Africa. And I think they're in 11 languages now. If you think about challenges based on COVID, they're facing, on top of everything else, rolling brownouts, difficult political environment. But they come up with really new creative things to respond to that. So I, I guess, you know, I look outside of our technology world as much as I can to try to help me think about being a little different, thinking a little differently within our technology world. That makes a lot of sense. Like if we all look at the same sources, we all end up thinking the same, right? Thanks a lot for your time and your great insights. Uh, I'll put a link to the research and yeah, look forward to seeing more from you. I understand that uh, now your company is pretty committed to the deep tech sector after having supported uh, angels and family offices on a broader basis. So I look forward to reading more from you. Likewise, and us from you. Thank you for having us and thank you for doing this. We think your work is terrific and we look forward to reading more of yours. <laughs> Thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Mac. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To know more about Different, visit their website at differentfunds.com and download their report. You can also follow them on Twitter or sign up for their newsletter for future updates. Subscribe now for future episodes. Follow us on Twitter at Lab2Market and at SOSV or visit our other podcasts, Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross-Border Internet. Thank you.